Thanks, Costa. I'm excited to be with you guys this morning. If you brought your Bibles, you can open them up to Daniel chapter 4. In fact, we're going to cover a bunch of scripture today, so uh, if you just want to sit back and listen, the scriptures will all be on the screen. Uh, but today we're going to cover Daniel chapter 4 and chapter 5, and it is the tale of two kings. The first is the story of King Nebuchadnezzar, or as my spell check calls him, King Nebraska. The great corn husker of the ancient <laughs> Near East. In chapter 4, beginning in verse 4 and 5, it says, Nebuchadnezzar was living in his palace. So I'm living in my palace in comfort and prosperity. But one night I had a dream that frightened me. I saw visions that terrified me as I laid in my bed. And the dream is of this mighty tree. It's, uh, uh, I don't know if you've, any of you have been to Animal Kingdom in Disney, like that's what I picture, you know, like this massive tree that reaches up to heavens and all of the animals of the world come and bask in its shade and its fruit feeds everyone until a holy one of God comes down and says, cut down the tree, lop it off. Let its stump stand, but band it in iron and bronze. This dream terrifies old Nebraska. And he calls for Daniel, his faithful interpreter of dreams. And Daniel shows up in verse 22 and he says, I hate to tell you, but that tree is you. For you've grown, you've grown strong and great, and your greatness reaches up to the heavens, and your rule to the ends of the earth. Daniel says, man, that tree is you. You're great and you're powerful, but the God of heaven has decided to lop you off. And for a period of time, like you, you're actually going to be bound up. And, and there's actually going to be a period of time, a season of time that you are going to go kind of wild. And you're going to be taken down out of your reign as king. Fast forward 12 months, in verse 30, it's only eight verses, but it happens 12 months later. King Nebuchadnezzar is standing and he says, he's looked out across the city. He says, look at this great city of Babylon. By my own mighty power, I have built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic splendor. In verse 31, it says, while these words were still hanging from his lips, a voice called down from heaven, Oh, King Nebraska, this message is for you. You are no longer ruler of this kingdom. In verse 32, it goes on to say, Seven periods of time will pass away, and you're going to live in a, as a wild man. And until you learn, that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone he chooses. And then in verse 33, you see his, his punishment. That same hour, like that moment, the judgment was fulfilled and Nebuchadnezzar was driven from human society and he ate grass like a cow and he was drenched with the dew of heaven and he lived this way until his hair was as long as an eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. 
Like there's actually a, I, I looked this up, there's actually a medical condition. It's a, it's a mental condition that causes you to crave grass like a cow. It's called veganism. Like, you know, <laughs> like and being vegan, like, I mean, we are a scriptural church. Being a vegan is a punishment from God. I mean, I just want you to see that. Sorry, I just ruined this whole story for you. Seven periods of time. His hair grows like eagle's feathers, fingernails like eagle's claws. I mean, this is pretty visual. And he roams around and he eats grass like a wild animal. Until, verse 34. It says, after this time had passed, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven. My sanity returned and I praised and worshiped the Most High and honored the one who lives forever His rule is everlasting, and his kingdom is eternal. He goes on to say this in verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and glorify and honor the king of heaven, and his acts are just and true, and he is able to, what are those three words? Fast forward several decades to chapter five, and you see uh, almost exactly the same story happen again, this time with a new king, a predecessor of, uh, uh, of Nebuchadnezzar, um, a king named Belshazzar. Chapter five opens, and King Belshazzar is having a huge celebratory banquet of all that he has done and created. It's a huge celebration of all of his achievements. I don't know the biggest banquet you've ever been to, but King uh, Belshazzar, he has a thousand of his nobles come and have a banquet together so he can show off. And as a part of his showing off, King Belshazzar decides, you know what would really impress these thousand nobles? If I went into the king's treasury and I pulled out the sacred objects that were taken from God's temple, this will really impress. And so he calls and they bring out the sacred cups and the holy items stolen from God's temple so that they can celebrate the idols of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. And this is a, is a great offense against God, the God of heaven. It's, uh, uh, it's blasphemy. Uh, do you guys know what blasphemy is? Like I, I think like a simple idea, a simple definition of blasphemy is to like just use something in a way that it wasn't created or intended. Uh, true story, at this church, I once saw a teenager at this church use the stapler on my desk as a hammer. You get it? Like blasphemy, right? Like you, to use something beyond its intended purpose. And, and, and I don't have time to get into the whole theology of it today, but, but you as created by God, I honestly, I think your intended purpose is twofold. Your first purpose is to glorify God and your second purpose is to bless. You can just let that sink in. I'm not gonna go deeper into that, but like to any time we use the things of God, in a way that they weren't intended, man, it, man, it brings offense. It, it dishonors God. Um, uh, another example maybe of, bla- actually, I think, I think pollution is blasphemy. I do. I think when, when you litter, like you're taking this thing that God created, this amazing creation that is intended to glorify God and to bless, and you're doing what with it? You're using it in a way that it was never intended 
Uh, I, I think prostitution and pornography work the same way, right? You, you take these individuals that were created by God to bless and to glorify God and then use them in a completely different way. You, they're not even human anymore. They, they just become objects. And if you mess with the created order of things, that's, that's going to get God's attention every single time. It's a challenge to him, the one who created it. And it reeks of this kind of arrogance to say that I know how to use the thing that you created better than you do. And that's exactly what happens with Belshazzar. He takes these things that belong to God and use them to worship these false idols. And that's when it happens. The writing on the wall, maybe you're familiar with that expression. Scripture says that a finger shows up and in the plaster of the king's wall, uh, this finger, this, this looks like a human hand, shows up and it writes in the plaster. The king and everybody see what is written and their knees knock. Scripture says they're pale with fright. Belshazzar, like Nebuchadnezzar, needs somebody to interpret what this message, needs somebody to explain it to him. And so once again, it's call for Daniel, get Daniel out here. And he offers Daniel, Belshazzar offers Daniel three, like this enormous wealth that he would be the third in line in the kingdom in terms of wealth and power and authority. And Daniel looks at the message on the wall and says, keep your money. I'll interpret the message for you. And he tells a story about someone that you may know. In verse 20, he says, he begins like this. He says, there was this guy and his heart and mind were puffed up with arrogance. And he was brought down from his royal throne and, and stripped of his glory. Keep going. What's it say next? He was driven from human society. He was given the mind of a wild animal and he lived among the wild donkeys and he ate grass like a cow and he was drenched with the dew of heaven until he learned that the most high God rules over all the kingdoms of the whole world and appoints anyone he desires to rule over them. Sound familiar? Verse 22 says, you are his successor, O Belshazzar, and you knew all of this, yet you have not humbled yourself. At least Nebuchadnezzar looked up to heaven. Belshazzar never has and never would. So verse 23 goes on to say, for you have proudly defied the Lord of heaven and have had these cups from his temple brought before you, praising gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron, wood and stone, gods that neither see nor hear nor know anything at all. And you have not honored the God who gives you the breath of life and controls your destiny. And he talks about the writing on the wall. It says uh, the words are mene, mene, tekel, parson, and like, there's lots of written about this and how you explain all this, but, but basically there's just a couple of messages here. Uh, Mene has this like a measure of weight and, and what it says is, oh great Belshazzar, you don't measure up. You have been weighed and have been found wanting. And Tekel and Parson just simply mean your days are numbered. It's the final countdown 
The gig is up. Don't ask for whom the bell tolls, because it tolls for you. And Belshazzar pays Daniel his reward. And then that very night, ironically, the name Belshazzar, uh, have you ever heard the God Save the Queen? You ever heard that? Belshazzar means God saved the king. But ironically, that night, in verse 30 of chapter 5, you can read it for yourself, that very night, King Belshazzar is assassinated and his kingdom is divided. All right, so you see uh, two very similar stories with two very different outcomes. So let's take this apart a little bit and, and talk about some of the takeaways here. Uh, I want to talk about millionaires, billionaires, and trillionaires. Um, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. Just remind you the offering boxes are right there at the back. Um, all right, how many, like, I, this, is so, this is so amazing to me. Like, I have to share this, and, and maybe I've already told you, but, like, do you know how many seconds are a million seconds? Like, it's, it's a number of days. How many seconds are a million seconds? Like, if we just thought of a million seconds, do you know how many days it is? It's 11 days. 11 days, almost 12 days, is a million seconds. Now, I know all you math people are out there checking me already because you know this is not my gift. I looked it up. Google would never lie. Um, all right, a, a million seconds is 11 days. A billion seconds. All right, so if you go to a billion, a billion seconds. In, anybody have a guess? A billion seconds. Somebody was really close. A billion seconds is 31 years. We went from 11 days to 31 years. And if you go all the way to a trillion, it's 31,000 years. Is that amazing to you? So what's amazing to me is like, like there, we know that there are millionaires in our world. We know that there are billionaires in our world. But like, are there, are there trillionaires in our world? Like, can you imagine like someone who is a trillionaire? I don't know if a single person has ever reached trillionaire status. If they do, I hope they come to our church. You know, but like I, we suspect that there may be families of trillionaires out there. Like a trillionaire is never going to show up on like the Forbes wealthiest, you know, whatever. You know why? Because they don't have to. Right, like I think maybe of like some of the Saudi families that have controlled oil for all of these generations, right? Like, like we suspect that maybe there are some families that are trillionaire families. Now imagine just for a second, like what would it be like to be a member of this family, to be a trillionaire? Like some of you just went to a happy place all of a sudden, like, right? Like if you are a trillionaire, you live completely at whim, Right? Right? If I'm a trillionaire, I'm never packing a suitcase again. You know, I'll just figure it out. Like, you know, like literally, if you're a trillionaire, there's nothing beyond your reach. There's nothing you couldn't possess or buy or build. Like, imagine this. What could you do if you could do anything? Right? Anything. Like, all right, so you're probably like me. This is pretty hard to, like, I can't even, like, it's hard for me to fathom because I'm going to Subway for lunch, and, like, the sub I want is not the sub of the day, but the sub of the day is a dollar cheaper. It's not really the sub I like, but it's a dollar cheaper. So I'm getting the sub of the day. You know, it's like, this is my world. You know, like, I can't imagine this whole other thing. But, like, 
King Nebuchadnezzar and King Belshazzar are at the height of power. Like, they're, they have no contemporaries. They have no peers. Just the palace of King Nebuchadnezzar. The palace walls are 320 feet high. And this is in the ancient world. His palace walls are 320 feet wide, feet high, and they are 80 feet wide. Two chariots, historians have documented this, two chariots, two four-horse chariots can ride side by side on top of the palace walls. And they're covered in these amazing blue tiles. Don't you see, like Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, they have the world at their fingertips. They only have to snap their fingers and every wish they ever had would be granted. Are you with me? They get whatever subway they want, right? You know, like. And there's a problem that happens there. In verse 30, it says, you know, Nebuchadnezzar is standing on his palace walls and he's going, man, look what I have done by my own mighty power. Daniel even says, your greatness reaches up to heaven. And how does God respond? How does God respond to the magnificence and the glory of mankind's greatest achievements and accomplishments? He laughs. He does. You can look it up for yourself in Psalm chapter 2. When people decide to throw away the things of God and turn their back on him and say, we've got this thing, we can do it. It says the one who rules in heaven laughs. You need to see this. Two of the greatest, wealthiest, most, most powerful men in the history of the world. One is assassinated, and the other, God literally makes an ass out of him. Right? What's at issue? Like, this shows up again and again in Scripture from the Garden of Eden to the Tower of Babel to the New Testament. You remember the story of the wealthy farmer who built an extra barn so he could sit back, eat, drink, and be merry. You remember what happened? Like we have this amazing ability to constantly overestimate our abilities and underestimate God's. Like, no, I did not plan a, a, a teaching about overestimating our abilities to coincide with Father's Day. No, that didn't happen. But pride always overinflates. And God's prerogative is to not only remind us of the proper order of things, but to restore the proper order of creation. Look what Nebuchadnezzar comes to this conclusion in verse 35. Nebuchadnezzar, this is Nebuchadnezzar after hair like an eagle's feathers. When he comes out of all of this, he says, all of the people of earth are nothing compared to him. He does as he pleases among the angels of heaven and among the people of the earth. And no one can stop him or say to him, what do you mean by doing these things? In verse 37, he fast forwards a little bit. He says, even I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and glorify and honor the king of heaven. All his acts are just and true. And he is able to humble 
the proud. You see, God painfully sometimes rips away the facade. The question is, like, you know, the, the truth of this is you don't have to have a trillionaire to suffer from the sin of pride. Right? This ever happened to you? You ever lose sight of the greatness of God? There's a small side note to this, uh, this teaching, and, but, but it's important, so I want to take us to a side place just for a moment. Sometimes Christians have been far too anxious to root for the proud to be humbled. Have you, you know what I'm talking about? Uh, it, it, or maybe you're aware of this, like it, at least in the world, the world thinks that Christians are generally pretty judgmental. Like we're the ones like, man, he's gonna get what he's coming to him. You know what I'm saying? Like that's what they think of us. You know, the, the world has this picture, and it, it's completely false. The world has this picture of we sit here in church thinking how good we are and how holy we are and how great we are and how we can't wait for everyone else to go to hell. Like this is, are you familiar with this? Okay, this is a perspective. I'm not saying it's true. It, it's just a perspective that out, that's out there. Daniel, on the other hand, recognizes how sideways we can get sometimes and does the opposite of at least what the world would have expected. In verse 19, this is, this is important, in chapter, chapter 4, right here he is, he sees the dream, he sees what's coming, and Daniel replies to Belshazzar, he says, man, I, honestly, I wish the events foreshadowed in this dream would happen to somebody else. You see that? Daniel's in captivity, Right? under a pagan king in a pagan kingdom. And what is Daniel's wish and concern? Is he sitting there going, oh, I can't wait for you to get what's coming to you, right? No. I know this is a side note, but it's an important question. Like, like why, are, why are we so anxious to seek the destruction of the godless? Why are we so anxious to, to seek the destruction of godless people instead of their redemption? Is that you? Jesus talks about this log in our own eyes. Important statement for you to remember. Daniel cares about people in power, even people who abuse it. And so should we. I think people in positions of authority and power have been given the responsibility. You know, I, I think the one who gave them the responsibility is the one of true power, but still what they do with it, it's up to them. And our job is not to judge. So if our job is not to judge, what is it? What's our job in these stories? I think our job is to learn, frankly. These stories are given to us so that we would learn again and again and again, like it repeats it again in chapter four and in chapter five. You probably heard this common refrain. It shows up, until you learn. 
until you learn that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone he chooses, until you learn again the proper order of things, how things have been created and established. In the Old Testament, this idea of like learning the order of creation, they, they sometimes phrase it this way. They say, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You, have you heard this? Like it's, this is putting things in order, putting things where they should be placed. Uh, Today, sometimes like we would translate fear of the Lord's beginning of wisdom. We might say today that there is a God and I'm not him, right? Let's recognize and remember this truth. And, and, And our job is to learn that truth. And the, and the question these stories raises up is, will you learn it? Have you learned it? I love a story that Max, Luta- Max Lucado tells about his brother. It's gross and amazing. Uh, because Max Lucado's brother, when they were young, had boils. Uh, I'm just going to read what Max wrote about this. He said, my brother had one once. In his middle school years, he contracted a case of the boils. Poisonous pus rose on the back of his neck like a tiny Mount St. Helens. My mom was a nurse and knew that the boil needed a good squeezing. So two thumbs every morning... The more she pressed, the more he screamed. I love that part. <laughs> but she wouldn't stop. She wouldn't stop until the seed of the boil popped out. Even in his book, he wrote, gee, Max, thanks for such a beautiful image. Like, <laughs> I love that. And there's a, there, man, there's an important lesson there for us. Like, he, like you, think mom, you think Max's mom was tough? Try the hands of God. You know, unconfessed sin sits in us. Pride sits in us like festering boils. And because he wants to take away our poisonous sin, sometimes God applies the pressure. There's a question for you. What are some of the ways that you've found that God has convicted you of your sin? Have you always been super receptive? Oh, you're right. I have been sitting there. I'll take care of that. Or did it require some pressure? For those of us struggling with sin, I want to give you some advice, and it's Daniel's advice to Nebuchadnezzar. It comes in verse 27. As a part of Daniel's concern for Nebuchadnezzar, he sees this whole thing coming. He sees what's about to happen. He sees the the consequences. He sees everything coming. And not only does he express concern for King Nebuchadnezzar, imagine this. A foreign servant speaks up to the king and says, King Nebuchadnezzar, would you be willing to take my advice? Like This is pretty bold. And he tells the king of the world at that time, stop sinning and do what's right. Break from your wicked past and be merciful to the poor. And perhaps then you will continue to prosper. You see, Nebuchadnezzar's stump isn't completely destroyed or pulled up. 
unlike Belshazzar, like Nebuchadnezzar has a chance. Like, and this is an amazing thing that happens from the beginning of scripture to the end. God's judgment characteristically has a yet. It has a pause. It has an opportunity. And Nebuchadnezzar is given the opportunity to become king again just as soon as he acknowledges he's not really king. Do you see that? Just as soon as he acknowledges the kingship of God. And the reality is we all have this opportunity. It's what we should hope for and pray for, not only for ourselves, but for everyone. In 1 John it says, man, if we confess our sins, God is faithful to forgive. So in just a minute, we're going to have a time of communion. And uh, after that boil story, I know you're really looking forward to it. Uh, but around the room are the elements of communion, and it's sacred space for us. Um, while you're there, man, I, I encourage you maybe to ask yourself some questions. How are you blaspheming God? Are you using things created for his purpose, created to glorify and bless to serve yourself? Maybe another question is, how have you overestimated your abilities this week and underestimated God's? And finally, I just uh, I remind you of the turning point for Nebuchadnezzar. You remember what the turning point? Hair like eagle's feathers, eating grass like an animal. You remember what the turning point was? Look what it says in verse 34. After the time had passed, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven. There's a lot there. When he looked up to heaven, he understood his place in the created order of things. And the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, says that we are to fix our eyes on Jesus. Do you see that? To regain our focus, to regain our priorities. Jesus himself says to seek first the kingdom of God and live righteously. And the good news, maybe you have been blaspheming God. Maybe you have way overestimated your abilities. But good news for you is it's not too late. It's not too late for you to return your gaze to heaven, to look up to heaven again, confess your sins, to repent. Maybe a question is, as you enter into this time of communion, just think of some ways that you can demonstrate your humility before God again this week. What if you put things back where they need to be? What if you place God back on your throne and you humbly beneath it? What could happen? May you discover that God is king, not just back then and not just in some distant future, but here and now and today. Humble beneath his reign, may you discover a world of possibilities opened up to you, a new world, a new life characterized by mercy and righteousness. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you again for your word. May it sink deeply within us. Surround us with amazing relationships that uh, can help keep our pridefulness at bay. Father God, let us remember you again on your throne. What can we say to you? What do we have to offer that, that you don't already know or don't already possess? How great and powerful you are. God, your kingdom will last forever. And so, Father God, bless us and be with us. Maybe, maybe we have got sideways. Maybe we have got things out of a line. Maybe we have blasphemed your name or overestimated our abilities. 
Father God, set us straight again today, even now in this moment. Let us remember and celebrate your lordship. Father God, bless us as we enter in this time of communion where we remember not just your greatness, but, but your great love and mercy that you have for us. You give us a chance. You give us an opportunity to return to you, and you do that through the sacrifice of your son, Jesus. So bless us as we enter in this time of communion. Again, let your word sink deeply within each of us. We love you, and in your son Jesus' name, everyone together says,